and welcome to a very special Halloween edition of the Life 2.0 podcast as we go up the down staircase in the outdoor and try to make sense out of the senseless. Let's get to it. You know, uh, I don't think that anybody would uh, quibble with the fact that you got to run a little Werewolves of London on Halloween by the late, great Warren Zevon. I don't if you know behind the scenes of that uh, song. Uh, for a year, I did a show called The Dow of Music in Washington, D.C., and I've always been a musicologist to some greater or lesser degree, and i just fascinated by how songs are written, how they come to life, how some are hits and some are misses. But that particular song, Warren Zevon, was opening back in the day for the Everly Brothers, who were huge in the 50s and into the 60s. And he was just starting to come into his own in the 70s. And there was they were on the road together. And Phil Everly of the Everly Brothers had watched a movie in a hotel room called The Werewolf of London, which was a really good movie. And uh, Henry Hull played the lycanthrop that was, uh, you know, causing havoc. And I think, that, yeah, it was the late, great Warner Oland who uh, played Charlie Chan in many movies, was actually the the wolf man that bit uh, Henry Hull. Anyway, you got to go watch the movie. And uh, Phil Everly saw the movie, and he thought, well, somebody ought to write a song about that. And somehow, in conversation, it came up with Warren Zevon. And Warren Zevon, being the guy that he is and was, uh, he put music to it. And he thought it would be a novelty song. It would never go anywhere. It's just filler material. When the producers heard it, it became a huge hit. So there's a little bit behind the scenes of... Uh, of the Werewolves of London. Glad to have you joining me on the Halloween show. I am so friggin' excited to do this. All of this that I uh, get so jacked up around Halloween goes back to my dad. Uh, I get so um, enamored with Halloween every year because of his influence. So for those of you who don't know, and there's only about six of you left on the planet, I've been talking about this stuff for so long. My dad uh, was a banker. And I use that in the, in the most liberal term, meaning that he did everything at the bank you could possibly imagine. He was in collections. He was in savings. He was in loans. He was a vice president of some segment of the bank at one point near where we lived at Six Corners. 
the bank is long gone. It's like a senior living center now, as is Sears across the street. But back in the 60s and the 70s, my dad was, you know, had it going on. He had the Brill Cream slick back. He had the Widow's Peak hair. He's got the good glasses. And uh, he had a great life uh, and made a great life, I should say, for all of us back then, you know, in that time. But there was a couple of months a year that my dad would drop all that shit and become the Prince of Darkness. When he was a kid growing up in the 50s, it was all about science fiction, and he just loved this stuff and had a huge influence on him. He would make haunted, uh, you know, little dioramas and stuff, according to my grandmother, when he was a kid. And he just carried it over into his adult life, and he always started building haunted mazes and castles and basements wherever they lived. And so when he finally bought this huge house, 4252 West Toe Street in Chicago, I'm pretty well convinced that one of the reasons he bought it, A, is because it looked kind of like a castle. It was a big old Victorian-type building. Even though it's, it was remodeled and stuff, there was a lot of stained glass, and there was stairways and things. But there was an entrance to the back, from the back to the basement off the alley. And I'm sure my dad walked in in 1966, summer of 1966, and went, oh, perfect place for a haunted house. I'm just convinced of that. My mom, God bless her, went along with all this. And for from 1967 till 1979, my dad and my cousins and his friends and other assorted people built this haunted castle every year. It was a big friggin' deal in our area of Chicago, the northwest side. So much so that at one point, uh, the Tri Chicago Tribune actually wrote a story. They sent somebody through our basement and wrote a story about it. My dad bought probably 10 copies of that paper and clipped them out and sent them to people and what have you. I think he framed one and took it to work. So proud of that. And so he was just this, it's just such a, a stark and drastic transformation. You got this guy who was probably 5'10", you know, on a good day. Uh, but unlike me who had blonde hair, when I had hair, he was dark-haired guy. And he would slick it back. And then he goes, you know, wear a goatee or something. And, you know, you put some bone white makeup on a guy like that and you get some fangs in there. My mom actually took the uh, curtains off my room one day. They were, they, had, they were like red and black. We had these heavy curtains in my bedroom because it faced the Kennedy Expressway. So it was to knock the light down and the sound. And she took those and made a cape out of those draperies for my dad. And I, it was amazing how he looked. I would sit there. Uh, watch my mom transform her husband into basically a mashup of Christopher Lee and Bella Lugosi. He loved it. And it was such a thrill for me as a kid to come walking home from grammar school and even later high school in like late September because I, would, I knew that all the cousins were there and that my dad's buddies and they were all hauling stuff out of the basement. Time to build the maze. Such a big deal at our house. And I'd come into the backyard, and sure enough, they'd all be out there drinking apple cider with a little something-something in there, I'm sure. And designing out, my dad would design out. He was a wannabe architect. He would literally draw out the maze every year how it was going to be. And So you walk into the basement from the back, and the first thing you step into is Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory. And one of his best bowling buddies was a guy named Hal Cook, who has long passed away. He was a, he was a commercial artist. So he drew the most unbelievable stuff in um, fluorescent paint. So when the black light was on, it looked like it was 3D. I wish I'd kept or had an opportunity to keep the artwork that he drew. It was way ahead of its time, you know, way ahead of its time. And so you'd go in there and Dr. Frankenstein would greet you. That was my dad's buddy, Tom Marin. 
And Tom was this guy about 5'5", five, five, bald head, uh, and, and kind of a round fellow. But he had this great presence about him. And he would, well, good, welcome to the laboratory. You know, this is a full-grown man. And then years later, when Tom retired, uh, a friend of mine from the neighborhood, Jerry, took over his place. And he made the Dr. Frankenstein character all his own. Friggin' hilarious. Once you see somebody you know put on the whole you know, the medical gown and all that kind of stuff. It kind of changes their character. So Jerry came in and um, he became Dr. Frankenstein later. And the first Frankenstein monster actually was Mr. Stitch from across the street, who was probably six feet tall. Maybe they blocked him up a little bit higher. I'm not really sure. He was behind like a curtain and all this stuff. And then a couple more monsters took over uh, and rotated the the characters in and out. A big fellow named Kenny uh, was, uh, was part of that. He probably was six too. And then I think one of our best monsters was the late, great Al Walschlager, who Al was 6'4", probably. And uh, he was my uh, teammate on the football team in high school. So big boo-boo Walschlager became Frankenstein's monster. And it was this constant rotating cast of people in and out. You know, uh, Sammy Wright was the mummy, and Bobby Hoffman was this uh, spider-spewing caveman. Uh, Mike Aaron, the years later, was a guy, like when the slasher movies came around, he would lay on the floor at the end of the maze, turn a light on when people came on. He'd be at the, on the floor. Somehow he was a hockey goalie, so he's a pretty limber guy. And he had one leg behind him and a fake leg straight out. And he would take a circular saw and cut his leg off. Matter of fact, I saw Mike, oh gosh, probably a couple years ago. I still had the circular saw. It still had bits of fluorescent paint on it that we had used because of the black lights. And I gave him the saw because he deserved it. And a lot of my friends got in the business over the years. You know, as we got older, we took parts in there. Uh, my buddy Jimbo, he uh, he was a ghoul in there. And uh, my buddy Al, who's one of the first guys I met when we moved to that area, we put him in a coffin. Al's about 5'8", five, 5'9", five, on a good day. We put him in this little makeshift coffin with like holding a stake above his heart. He was dressed like a vampire, right? And that went pretty well until somebody tried to shove the stake in his chest. That didn't go too good. So I think Al was done after that. But it was fantastic either way. You know, they just went over the top of this stuff. And then as you left the laboratory, it would go on these different mazes and monsters. One time when I was a kid, I found an elk hide that somebody had thrown out in the garbage in our alley. This thing stunk to high heaven. It had flies on it and everything. And I dragged it home. I'm look at this. My dad's like, that's fantastic. So we wrapped that up, put it in a corner. It sm- my, I thought my mom was going to give it up at that point, but it smelled to high heaven. So in the dark, you'd bump into this thing. It was like Bigfoot. You could, it was smelly and hairy. It was an elk hide. And then you start winding your way through, and you get to the end of the maze. And it's fascinating to me. Our basement wasn't that big. But because of the way the mazes were set up, and it was dark and different you know, corners and cutoffs, it seemed like it was a mile long. Red light bulbs and all kind of stuff. You get to the end there, and there's the werewolf. It was my cousin, Rich, the Sarge, who had uh, just come back from Vietnam. And uh, he, he would apply this makeup directly on his face, the spirit gum with the hair. You could buy braids of hair, and he would take two, three hours to put all this makeup on. And he was chained against the wall, and his wife, Marie, played a gypsy woman. I mean, it is high-end stuff, kids. And he had these plastic chains. I'll never forget it. These plastic chains were attached to the wall. And he had the brilliant idea of taking coat hangers and bending them so the, the last link on the chain around his wrist looked like, you know, it was made from, from steel. It was wrapped in black uh, tape. 
but they were easy to break out of. And so at the end, these people would be huddled like sheep crying to get out of the basement. And my dad would suddenly appear taking a, a back way to get over there and say, I'll protect you as the Dracula, right? As the count, I'll protect you. Right. And, um, the Sarge, AKA werewolf would be trying to break away. And sure enough, once that one arm came out of the chains, don't worry, he's chained up. But once that arm came out, shit hit the fan. I'm here to tell you people screaming to high heaven. Of course, everybody waiting outside is hearing this. You couldn't get any better, uh, advertisement for the haunted house. That's for sure. And later, I think I was probably about 10 at this point. Uh, I would be the last monster. I would sit up at the top of the stairs before they go into our house and my mom would be there all happy and smiley. And she'd have a big bullet punch with floating spiders in it. And I would be sitting there at the top of the stairs in the dark and I had a pull chain and it would turn out a, like a blue light above me. And it looked like I was just like a mannequin under like an oil cloth. And I had taken this clear mask and it took weeks to melt different colored wax on this than this face like my face was melting you know and people walking by thought i was just you know a decoy until i grabbed their freaking legs man it was great so the influence on halloween i cannot even begin to tell you uh, this is my favorite time of the year because of my dad and and the joy albeit screaming joy that my dad brought to so many people for so many years to this day I still have friends of mine, and some of them might be listening to this podcast that remember vividly what it was like waiting in that in line to go into the basement. We paid, I think in the beginning it was 25 cents, and it got booted up to 50 cents to get in. This is long before, the, you know, now you pay 40, 50, 60 dollars to go into a haunted house. And it's a Hollywood type production they're doing today for sure. But my dad, I got to tell you, he turned our basement into that, uh, that uh, haunted house. It was really, really something. And it was a sad time when. You know, when he said, oh, that's enough, you know, he'd go, it had run its course. And these other things were popping up that were bigger and, and you know, people were going to those. But I got to say it one more time, you know, hats off to you, Pop. It just is astonishing uh, the influence that that had. Of course, watching Creature Features on WGN every Saturday night also added to it. I can remember being at parties with my folks. My dad's like, we got to leave because we would drive home and watch Creature Features. Over and over and over and over again. So if you were in my studio this morning, you would you would see off to the right here uh, some reminders of uh, of that time with my dad. I have this Aurora model, which came out in the '60s of all the monsters. It was, back then it cost like seven bucks. I think I paid like ninety dollars for this thing because it's an original 1963 Aurora Dracula. Uh, model from Aurora. I'm not taking it out of the box. It's just in there. It reminds me of my dad right next to it. Got a couple of his little things that he wore uh, back in that time. And then off to the side of that, a couple of my favorite monsters, the creature from the Black Lagoon and of course Frankenstein. These are full head masks, Hollywood quality. I just get, I just need the reminders of him. And last night I'm watching TCM, you know, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, all that stuff, just fascinating and wonderful to me. So in all of that, of course, it's a celebration of, uh, of how much he enjoyed Halloween. But there is a more serious side to this, a more paranormal side to all this, which I never expected in my life. When I was 19 years old, I was in a severe electrical accident working part-time at an Osco drugstore in Chicago, and I was gone. The paramedics uh, from Chicago Fire Department came and revived me, and I haven't been the same since. That was the first time you know, checked out, no heart rate. Uh, and when they finally brought me back, my heart was bouncing around like a, you know, trampoline for, I don't know, a month or two. 
I was in the hospital for two, three weeks with severe burns on my hands. I don't know how I type. I'm just really glad that I can. I think, you know, the, when I went to the ER and I learned over time not to say accident anymore because I think it was on purpose, so I call it an incident. When that took place, that night my dad came into the, the ER and the guy's like, you know, we're going to take this finger off. My dad's like, no, you're not because he's a piano player. He may need that. He'll, he'll bounce back. I don't play the freaking piano, but my dad grabbed it the opportunity and, and uh, I think he helped me out there. And so skin grafts and, you know, physical therapy and stuff. And now typing is, is just second, you know, nature to me. And I'm just fascinated that my right hand works as good as it does. Anyway, that was the first time. The second time was two weeks after we were married, my former wife and I, we were in a very uh, bad car accident, uh, hit broadside by a drunk driver at 75 miles an hour. I was driving a 1983 Pontiac Firebird. This blasted out of my socks. Second time, I'm covered up. You're gone. That's it. I had this serious out-of-body experience. And those two things combined, in my opinion, my observation and my experience for sure, flipped the switch, tripped the trigger, rerouted some sort of wiring that I started having these experiences that I surely as shit could not explain. Listen, I grew up, we didn't put ketchup on our hot dogs in Chicago. So the stuff that had happened was so far out of my reach and my belief system, I didn't know what to do with it. So eventually years later, when all this stuff started piling up on me, I decided to write it down. And in 2019, I wrote a book that came out called Phenomenon, Sacred Moments, Messages, Memories, and Other Shit I Can't Explain. Because ever since those two events, I've had this laundry list of stuff that I can't explain. I, I can't explain it. Some of them are singular events that only I experienced. And as you're going to hear in a few minutes, some are ones that I experienced with people, other people, witnesses, group experience. So what's happened in the past week is, uh, um, you know, getting ready for this show. I'm thinking, how do I put this together? And I could have, you know, read right out of the book, but I thought that would take too long. And, you know, even though I do a lot of audiobook work, I don't want to get into all that. So I went back and grabbed a couple of clips. My uh, good friend and my gal pal, Candace Jordan, who I produce her podcast called The Candid Candace Podcast. You might want to listen to that. Um, we had a, a woman on named Ursula Belinsky, who is a paranormal investigator in Chicago. And I shared with her a couple of the events that I uh, had experienced over time. And so I grabbed those clips and made it just a little bit easier to insert into the show. Uh, but they're all just as prevalent in my mind today as they were when they happened years ago. The first one here is uh, something that took place when I was working at uh, Harpo Radio with Oprah Winfrey. And it has to do with the Eastland disaster and the after effects of that well over 100 years uh, from when the event took place. So I grabbed that clip. So this is from the Candace Jordan podcast about a week ago with Ursula Belinsky. And uh, it went like this. Can I, can I jump? Um, this is really hard for me to sit still. <laughs> you don't ever have to sit still, I know, still, I know. John. I don't want to hijack the show. You know, no, I'm, I'm sitting you're, here going, you're the my co-host. God. Well, yeah, but there's so much of what you're talking about rings true with me. And, 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 and I mentioned it earlier. And again, you got how many books out? Twelve, well, working on three more right there now. There you go. I can relate. <laughs> and I was, I, I was talking about this book I wrote called Phenomenon, Sacred Moments, Messages, Memories, and Other Shit I Can't Explain oh, because yeah. it, it just was Candace. Is oh, shit in yeah. the title? Yeah. Well, I can't oh. say shit. You got to put an asterisk there. But I can say <laughs> it here because we're on podcast. Yeah, sure. But um, but it's, it has been like that for me. I got electrocuted when I was in high school, in college, my first year of college. And my life's never been the same since. And I don't like it for the most part. So this stuff oh. would happen 
and I don't know why. And the more I tried to push it away, the more it came back. So that was the first time. And then the second time was right after I got married, we were in a very bad car accident out in Schaumburg and they had to bring me back. That was the second time John's gone and he's, yeah. Mm. So I tend to see things very broadly, like big picture stuff. And and yet you got to pay attention to the little things that make up the big picture. And when these events started taking place that I couldn't explain, it, it scared the crap out of me, number one. Number two, I didn't know what I was supposed to do with it, if anything. And yet the more I tried to understand it, the less I did. And so this book that I wrote is filled with these things that I really don't understand that happened. Some of them have witnesses, like this one I just want to share here because we talked yeah. about earlier yeah. about the Eastland disaster. Oh. Right? Nice. And so the Eastland, you know, was it was a boat turned over in the Chicago River and, you know, almost a thousand people died, like eight hundred and forty nine Chicagoans died. They were all going on a picnic and the boat was overloaded and it rolled over men, women and children, entire families wiped out. Mm. And the morgue at the time was an armory, which later became Harpo Studios. Oh. So I think about ninety percent of the victims of the Eastland were were laid out at that morgue. Uh, that, that later yeah, it was beca- about 550 was bodies it? on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just devastating for people. And it, you know, so I had no knowledge of this when I, I knew about the Eastland cause I grew up in Chicago, but when I came on board at Harpo to work on the radio end, I really didn't know about the whole morgue deal, but I would hear the security guys talking about seeing people in the basement across the streets. Now we were kitty corner from the Harpo studios and they would talk about this gray lady that would always be kind of walking the hallways. And these are guys are hard asses and they don't go in the basement. I don't care if it's the middle of the day. So I'm like, okay, so that, fine. That's over there though. That's on the other side of the street. I'm fine here. In 2008, I think it was, we're taping a show with our friend Richard Crow for Halloween. Gene oh. Chatsky is the, at the time was the NBC Today Show financial maven. Good friend of mine, part of our lineup. And so we're doing this Halloween show. Richard's talking about all this stuff like you have. I had met him a long time ago. We were friends. He did all the radio with me at WGN, things like that. And he's talking about the Eastland disaster and the whole morgue thing. And I'm like, wait, wait, what? And so he brings that up and all this stuff goes on and da-da-da-da. Okay, so we Richard's on the phone. Gene's in New York. Myself and my team are ensconced in a small edit studio that holds about three or four people. It's very small. Myself, uh, my highly significant other, Teresa, uh, my editor, Katie, and our engineer, Matt, was stuck his nose in there because we're all listening to this. We finish the show. We say goodbye to Richard. He's on a phone line. Keep this in mind. He's gone. Jean's on an ISDN line from her home in New York. So that's an open line between us and New York City, but that's it. So it come, the way the you know studios are set up, certain things come through certain speakers. So we have about four or five speakers, but we're only using two. Richard's gone now. We're down to just Jean talking on this speaker. And as we're sitting here taking a short break of what happened, this voice comes in the room. We all hear it. And it says, Niels Peterson will not be forgotten. And I'm like, what the, what? It then it happens again. Niels Peterson will not be forgotten. Very distinct, very affirming. And Gene could hear it in New York. And there's no speakers on, there's nobody in the room, there, you know, and, and, so what? So anyway, I opened the door. It was like this immense pressure. I opened the door and okay, fine. Happens again a third time. 
Niels Peterson will not be forgotten. That was it. I called timeout. We locked everything. That was it. I go back to my office oh my and God. I call Richard Crow and I said, you're not going to effing believe what happened. He goes, I'm coming right over. I'm like, no, 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 no. No, you're not coming. We're not getting through and all this stuff. So we took a break and cleared the air and came back and finished the show. Everything was okay, but we're all kind of jittery. Mm-hmm. So maybe an hour after we finished the show, Matt, the engineer comes back in. He goes, you're not going to believe this. I said, what's that? He went and looked up the, um, the, the, the list of victims on the Eastland. Oh, Niels no. Peterson's on there. Oh, no. And that was enough for me. So uh. that all happened. All these years later, a decade later, I'm writing this book about, you know, how things went and what happened. And I think, do I put this particular event in there? And the reason I, I put it in the book is because it wasn't just me. We all heard it. Yeah. So there's oh. witnesses. It wasn't just me. And I'm sitting there and I realize that I'm looking up this Niels Peterson. And if you look up Eastland, there's a ton of stuff online because it was very famous. And they still mm-hmm. hear voices and things down at the dock area. Yep. where the boat rolled over, where all these people lost their lives. And I started going through it back and forth and this and that. And I'm thinking, whatever happened to all the people that died and where were they buried and stuff like that? You know, there were a lot of them were immigrants and, and all that kind of thing. So I come across the fact that Niels Peterson is buried in someplace called Oak Ridge Cemetery, which I've never heard of. And I Google it. Uh-oh. It's five minutes from my house. <laughs> I drive past it every day without knowing what it's called. I've walked past there. And he is buried in Section 12, Plot 96. Oh, my God. So I go over there, oh, and I find, it's not hard to find, it's right there. And there is this, his headstone looks like a book, an open book from the side. It's like the pages and his name's there. What I didn't realize is that his son is buried with him and died as well in the in the Eastland? Oh. Little Little Royal was his name, Royal, R O Y A L. And I got so emotional standing oh. there, and this is well over a hundred years later, and all of us it just came to me like this whole not being forgotten thing, and that goes right back to what Ursula said at the beginning about this this there's something happens energy. when you it's energy and it doesn't go away, and so if nothing else couple, three, four, five times a year, I go out and spend a little time with the fellas. And I sit there a little bit and just kind of take a little break and they're not forgotten. Mm. Wow. So those type of things really are unnerving to me. And yet at some point they seem to have resolve and and that part I'm okay with. I'm telling you to this day, uh, when I drive into the city, which isn't very often past where Harpo used to be. Now that's McDonald's headquarters. I always wonder if the people in the buildings that are where Harpo used to be, if they experience any phenomenon they can't explain. Because to me, as I mentioned in there, it's all about energy. And to me, energy just, it moves around. It may dissipate a little bit here and there, but I think it takes a long time for it to find its level. And that's the only way I can explain how some of this stuff took place. So the second thing that came up in the podcast with Candace was having to do with my alma mater, Shures High School. And this was one that was so unexpected that <laughs> I had to not only include it in this podcast, but also in Candace's podcast, because it was not just experienced by me, 
But after the fact, I sent the audio, which you're going to hear in a few minutes, uh, to Kathy Wren, who was a friend of mine at Schur's, a teacher there, and to Dr. Rodriguez, who was the principal at the time. And when I was at Schur's, we heard about, yeah, it's haunted, this and that. Well, you're going to hear from Ursula that it's far more paranormal activity at Schur's High School than I ever imagined. And then when I experienced it, I about shit myself. I'm not kidding. Here you go. Were so moved by the things that had happened to them, mm-hmm. and from so for me, there is that that there that reality is there, and if you can verify it by the means that we have with scientific tools, um, great. But most most oftentimes that's not the case, and but it doesn't it doesn't dismiss the impact that these experiences have on people. Mm-hmm. So, right. so, that's, case so that's point, what I would say. Case in point. Uh, I have evidence that I took me an hour to find after Ursula and I did the tech check, and it's about Schur's High School. So, Ursula, I'm going to let you, before I say anything else about what happened, I'll let you take the lead because you've been there, and I didn't even know you've been there until today. So please expand on that. Yeah, during the sound check, um, John had mentioned that he had um, spent some time at Schur's High School on the northwest side of Chicago, the beautiful um, like arts and crafts high school huge high school my uh my half brother went there way back in the day in the 1950s and um i didn't know growing up here but found out maybe about 10 years ago that it is a very haunted school and i got to know it very well because i'd done investigations there with uh, chicago paranormal um investigations which is um big ghost hunting team located in northwest suburbs and they were very closely connected to Schur's and did many overnight investigations there. And it came to the point where they would always uh, do like uh, graduation events with the seniors where they would go song with them overnight. Um, and so it was really great. We had a good, good uh, relationship with them. And we actually held one of our last paranormal conferences at Schur's High School. Cool. And I cannot tell you, this must have been now in uh, maybe 2017. And I can't tell you during this conference, because we were set up, we had all of our vendors set up in the gym and up and down the hallways leading to the auditorium. And we had speakers come literally from all over the world to speak at the conference, you know, from television and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, all through the conference weekend, probably six or seven women that used the bathroom, uh, the women's bathroom in the hallway between the gymnasium and the auditorium had someone a a man's voice talk to them including myself oh my goodness i was in that bathroom (laughs) and uh, i was uh, i thought i was alone and you know we have like a couple practical jokers like uh dave schrader from darkness radio who's on the holzer files he would always be the host for the weekend and you know we always joke around with everybody you know a couple Mm -hmm. different guys like that so i'm in the stall i'm literally sitting on the toilet and someone pounds on my door, my stall door, and says in this voice, Ursula, like that, right? No. And I open the door like right away, and there's absolutely nobody there. There's no one in the room. Oh, my God. And I go out, and I find Dave Schrader. I'm like, did you just pound on my bathroom stall door? He's like, no, I really didn't. And he's like, that sounds like something I would do, but no, I didn't. And at the end of that weekend, when we did our, we had like a a big gathering where everybody talked about like if they had experiences over the weekend, Uh I was not alone in that same experience in that bathroom. And then the other place where people 
heard so much go on was in the gymnasium. Mm -hmm. There's a running track above Mm -hmm. the gym. And everybody was hearing runners on the track. Completely empty. Throughout the entire weekend. So get this, Candace. She's telling, this conversation is a couple hours ago. And I said, I can't effing believe this. I mean, I can, but I can't. So here's a couple things. Where that took place, that's the old building, the, the, the wings of the building, as they call it. They were built in 1925. The main building was started in construction in 1907, was finished in 1909. The doors opened in 1910. And when I went there, I was there from 73 to 77. Then I taught there for a couple of years. And we'd hear our stuff now and again. And the rumor was that there was workmen that had died or been killed on the site when they were building the original uh, main part of Schur's High School. And my friend, Tim Anderson is the musical director. He's on the fifth floor. So the only thing higher than that is all the rafters and it's all, it's all you can walk under the, under the roof. Uh-huh. And he hears stuff all the time. He's up there on the fifth floor. So I was telling Ursula and I think, I, I can't wait to share this and I found the audio. So here's what happened. Oh. Just before the pandemic, uh, I offered my services to go back and teach the kids about podcasting and, and radio production. Yeah, There was a big national um, competition. I think WTTW was actually sponsoring. No, that's TV. Would have been whatever channel NPR is here in Chicago. Uh-huh. And so there's like schools from all over the country and you have to have a 12-minute podcast. Uh-huh. So the seniors, and I'm thinking this has got to be 2018 maybe, somewhere in there. Um, a friend of mine, Kathy Ren is the teacher, asked if I would do it. I said, sure. So we're working on this project. We get all this work done for about six weeks. And what the kids decided to do was go in the library, which used to be the auditorium when the place was built. It's now the library. And we would have like a a pseudo live audience because this is all taped. And they're going to interview the principal, Dr. Rodriguez, and they're going to talk about, um, you know, responsibility and things like that and all the kind of stuff that goes along with being a teenager. So this was their show. I was just behind the scenes getting them ready and trying to figure it out. So we get all set up in the library. And I have what's called a Zoom machine it's this little thing it's about the size of a like a cell phone maybe a little bit bigger but you can record off it so i have it all set up and i have two mics i got the mic for the doc and i got the mic for the kids that are interview they got about 40 or 50 kids in the library and we yeah okay everybody clap and here we go i turn the the recording on and this goes for about five minutes and i happen to glance down and there is nothing being recorded Mm. not possible i know what i'm doing it's on record what's the deal here so i started i stop everybody we got to restart here Mm-hmm. And so we restart and it starts recording. I said, okay, fine. So they do this whole thing and I get back home and I let it sit for a couple of days and I download all the audio into my computer. Mm-hmm. And that's when I heard something. Oh, from what? the library. Listen, well, I'm going to play it because it took me an hour to oh find this. So this, this is, is great. this was taped. Now I'll let Ursula, because she's the, she's the pro here. I don't know what this was or what it is. You're going to hear some noise that what I think is like a, a abject voice a man's voice and then you'll hear the the you know the principal at the end talking where it got picked up so here we go okay oh yeah
No, I, I understand broadly that... That's where it ends. Whoa. That is so spooky. Well, that yeah. is and, super and I spooky. listened to that three or four times, and I thought, I'm not telling anybody. But oh. I sent it to my friend who's the teacher who passed on the principal. He goes, yeah, yeah, we hear stuff in there. It's so, so strange that you hear nothing else while I that's know. going on. So that's out of, that was a 45-minute conversation that I happened to look down. So when I got the, what I'm getting at is when I got the audio file, it's, you know, 45 minutes long. And it wasn't right away that I heard this. I got the hair in my right leg standing up now. And <laughs> right? I'm remembering hearing this for the first time, and I thought, what the hell? Oh. So that's what came at Shures. I'm actually speechless. I know. And oh, that I, is so scary. That sound is so scary. It's almost like somebody's trying to break through. It's something, something. And what I got out of that, now here goes my right arm. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What I got out of that, you know, if we go with this thing about the possibility of these workers, like somebody pounding on something. Yeah. You right. Know? Exactly. That's exactly what my thought Ooh, was too. Okay. Uh-huh. So I'll never oh go in. God. I mean, I've been going back and forth out of there for years and, you know, I don't, it doesn't bother me, of course, but I don't think I'd sleep overnight. Oh, I wouldn't spend a second in that place. Not a <laughs> second. Oh, my There's, word. There's um, huge tunnels under there, too. Now, see, is you this, you might know this. I heard, and I don't know if this could possibly be true. You know where the Six Corners area is, right? Of course. They mm-hmm. say that there are tunnels that go from Shures all the way up to Six Corners. Really? I can't imagine. Well, that's what I said, really. That's a long way. But there are tunnels for some reason under that building. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh, my God. Let's turn all the lights out and put the candles on. <laughs> Wow, even listening to that back on a clip still gets me. I mean, I, I just remember helping her with this project, going into the library, setting up my equipment. There's nothing wrong with it. I use it all the time. Looking down at the monitor, he's talking. Dr. Rodriguez is talking. Kids are talking. There's absolutely nothing being recorded. There's no bounce at all on the volume and the level. And then starting the whole thing over again and then putting it away for a couple of days, as I said in the clip, and then listening to this thing, that this uh, thing, this voice, what it sounded like to me, and this knocking sound, can't explain it. And everything that Ursula talked about, here we go again. When I talk about this stuff, the hair of my leg stands up. There's something there. And what I've learned over time, while this is Halloween-related show, obviously, you know, these things that have taken place that I've experienced have nothing to do with Halloween. They're going on all the time. There's a couple more that... Uh, I was going to talk about here, but I I think just for the sake of time, two was enough. But should you choose to uh, explore this a little further, you can get my book uh, at lulu.com. It's Phenomenon, Sacred Moments, Messages and Memories and other shit I can't explain. And also the audio book is available on Audible. And after about 25 of these things over a lifetime, I see a pattern there. And it just comes down to the unexplained. I can't, I don't have a definitive answer. And the longer I am around, the less I need to find the answer. I'm just more appreciative of what took place. It's almost like a radio station. You're not going to hear jazz on a country station. It's not going to happen. But if you tune into the certain station to hear the music you want to hear, it'll be there. And I think to me, it's been a process of tuning into things, even reluctantly. Like, take one little step, and here's the next step, and here's the next step, and here's the next step. The thing with Harpo was was just mind-blowing to me that we all heard it. Richard Crow, my friend, the late great Richard Crow, I dedicated the book to him because I learned so much from him about this stuff. Uh, you know, that he was like, well, yeah, it just makes sense. And so in all of that, um, 
Halloween, you know, from the perspective of how I grew up was just a fascinating, wonderful, delightful time. And there are just a few artifacts I have left from back then, some stuff from my dad and a couple pictures and things like that. And then, of course, the, the, the things that I've experienced, far more profound and wide-ranging past, quote, Halloween, but into the paranormal, something I really still don't understand and, and almost don't want to, but can't help but experiencing from time to time. And I would guess, I may be a little presumptuous here, but I would guess that if you're listening to the show and you heard this stuff, that you may too have things you can't explain. And when that happens to me, I realize I don't freaking know everything as much as I think I do. And that there's always room for that, that stuff to get in. There's always room for the, for the unexplained, as it were. And I think that is a little bit of the, the magic elixir of life. That, there, that you know, something comes along and it's like, wow, how the hell did that happen? What's, I just was taping a podcast. What is this? I was just at work doing a radio show. What is this voice? And on and on and on. So whether it's my rewiring that took place totally back in, you know, 1979 when I got electrocuted or years later in 1986 for that car accident, it comes and goes. And I always have a choice in it. I could say yay or nay. I could follow it or not. Uh, and in the case of uh, Niels Peterson, I just was so compelled. Once I found that that cemetery was right near me, I had to go there. I had to stand there. I got so emotional about uh, about seeing that. So anyway, uh, that's my Halloween spiel for this year. It is a combination of uh, my dad, who was the count, and all this other stuff that has taken place in my life that I find um Enhances my life experience as much as I, I hate to admit that. That's for sure. So if you're going to be out trick-or-treating, stay warm because it's going to be a cold one. And I got to send you off with my dad's favorite song. Uh, that's just the way that it goes. The Monster Mash, which I'm going to drop the needle on here in a second, was by Bobby Pickett. And we've all heard this. It was a huge hit for him back in 1962. And he was an aspiring actor who sang with a band called The Cordials at Night while he went to auditions during the day. And then one night while performing with his band, Bobby Pickett did a monologue in imitation of horror movie actor Boris Karloff while performing the Diamond's Little Darlin. So he did Little Darlin, but like Boris Karloff. I bet it was great. The audience loved it. Uh, another band member uh, encouraged him to do more with the Karloff thing. And they composed the Monster Mash. And they recorded it with Gary S. Paxson and the famous pianist Leon Russell. A lot of people don't know that. His band was called the Crip Kicker Five. <laughs> it is just great stuff. So thanks for spending a little bit of Halloween with me. And remember, it's all good. I was working in the lab late Light, when my eyes beheld an eerie sight For my monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the match He did the monster match The monster match It was a graveyard smash He did the match It caught on in a flash He did the match He did the monster match From my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom where the vampires feast The ghouls all came from their humble abode To get a jolt from my electrode They did the mash They did the monster mash The monster mash 
It was a graveyard smash. They did the match. It caught on in a flash. They did the match. They did the monster match. The zombies were having fun. The party had just begun. The guests included Wolfman, Dracula, and his son. The scene was rocking, all were digging the sounds. Igor on chains, backed by his baying hounds. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker Five. They played the match. They played the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. They played the match. It got on in a flash. They played the match. They played the monster match. Out from his coffin, Rack's voice did ring. Seemed he was troubled by just one thing. Opened the lid and shook his fist and said, Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the match. It's now the monster match. The monster match. And it's a graveyard smash. It's now the match. It's caught on in a flash. It's now the match. It's now the monster match. Now everything's cool, Drax's a part of the band And my Monster Mash is the hit of the land For you, the living, this mash was meant to When you get to my door, tell them what is said Then you can mash Then you can Monster Mash The Monster Mash And do my graveyard smash Then you can mash You'll catch on in a flash Then you can mash Then you can Monster Mash Mash! Ooh.